You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. If you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 27, Romans 1, verses 24 to 27. In our text this morning, we see how God's wrath is being revealed. And we'll continue to see this on next week as as Ken picks up uh, this passage in verse 28. And we see how Paul says it's being revealed in his day, and, and that continues on into our day. Uh, as God removes his hand of grace, which has been restraining sin in mankind. I'd say also uh, in society, and and we'll mention how we may be able to see that uh, towards the end. But as we consider what this text touches on this morning, and, and considering where we find ourselves in history and in society, I thought it would be good to tackle some of the, well, at least one, I'll take time for one argument, that, that opposes what we see here in Scripture and the teaching about homosexuality. I think it'd be good, so at the very least, as we hear these arguments, and maybe we may think to ourselves, well, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Well, we can at least be reassured that there, there is an answer, and I can go and find out uh, how I can respond to these things and, and, and what is right. And so one popular argument that we see is that we're told that the term homosexuality <clears throat> does not actually appear in the Greek or the Hebrew, the original text of Scripture. And uh, they may say it as saying, well, you know, there, there's, it's actually misinterpreted and, and mistranslated, or, or they'll, they'll do all kinds of jumping jacks to get around it. And say so it's, not, it's not in the original text, not in the original Greek or Hebrew. Uh, one former United Methodist preacher who uh, received a Master's of Divinity from Fuller Seminary She claims that the word homosexuality was inserted into the English Bible in in the 1940s and was done so for bigoted reasons. She also claims that in Leviticus, when it says a man shall not lay with a man, that she says that's not in the original text. The original text, going back to the Hebrew, that's her claim, but she does not go to the Hebrew to make her argument. She says... There in, the, in, Lutheran's, in Luther's translation, in the German, the word is actually boys, and so she claims it's actually referring to pedophilia. But again, why are you arguing from the German if, if we're asking if this is in the original text, the original Hebrew? When thinking about how we should understand translations, Dr. James White, who is a professor, has been a professor of both Hebrew and Greek. I think right now he's teaching Greek at uh, Grace Theological Seminary in Arkansas. But he points out that in the Bible, the the term homosexuality would be determined by the Greek and Hebrew words. And those Greek and Hebrew words must be defined by how they're used in their context. The question then is, did the words in the original text describe what we refer to in English as homosexuality? And they do. Again, as James White points out, what matters is how accurately the English words we are using represent the original Greek and Hebrew. 
And when you look at that, it can't be denied that the Bible is clear on this. And since the Bible is clear, we need to be clear. We don't help anybody by muddying the waters. And I know that's hard. And society and culture around us makes that hard. And maybe for some of us, we have friends or family, we have loved ones in our lives that that are living in this lifestyle, and, and that may tempt us to want to shy away from being clear on this matter. I feel that. I, I, I'm, I'm there myself. I get it. It's hard. But to be unclear or to deny the Bible's teaching is to then inadvertently redefine sin. And if we redefine sin, we redefine the gospel. Because what did Christ come to die for? Why was he a guilt offering? What what standard was violated? We have to call sin what the Bible calls sin. And we've all needed that. All of us. As we mentioned last week, We've all needed that so we ourselves in our sin can see our personal need for the gospel, can see our need for Jesus to save us so that we would turn to Jesus by faith and be saved. So brothers and sisters, for sure, we cannot condone what the Bible calls sin. So where many may struggle with this, is where we're presented with a false dichotomy that I either have to condone, I either have to approve, or I'm hateful. But that's ridiculous. Ask any parent with a teenage child or maybe an adult child that has chosen a path of sinfulness and and self-destruction in their lives, Uh, maybe even things that are illegal and all of those kinds of things. Ask any parent that struggles with those things that, that knows that it is not good for their child to condone that child's behavior. And then ask that parent if that means they hate their child. No, clearly, that is a, a leap in logic and reason. It's foolish. And listen, we are not to hate. For sure, the Bible doesn't give us that. We are to love. And in loving the other person, we cannot condone. So we must call sin what the Bible calls sin and point every sinner to Christ to be saved just as someone pointed us to Christ to be saved. We do this out of love. For the wrath of God is real. God is a just and holy God, and he must deal justly with all sin, with all violations of his law and standard, with all that opposes his holiness, or he's not holy and just. And if he's not holy and just, he's not good. But he is good, and in his goodness, he is love, and in his love, he has sent the Savior, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to save all who will trust in him alone. No matter their sin, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, 
Trust in Christ and you will be saved. Last week we began to get into Paul's support for his, the thesis of this letter, which is found in verses 16 and 17. That being that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And why is it the power of God? For in the, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So he's going to defend this again for the next 11 chapters. And we got to this as going through the text, we saw that Paul is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And he explains why he's eager, because he's not ashamed of the gospel. And then that's how we get into the thesis, because he says he's not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God as in it righteousness, the righteousness from God is revealed. And so then last week, we saw why it's necessary for the righteousness from God to be revealed in the gospel. We see in verse 18, that's because God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so then we went over why God's wrath is revealed. Because God has made himself known in his creation. He's made the knowledge of himself plain, and yet though mankind knew God, they they did not honor him or give him thanks. Instead, Mankind exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the lesser things. Mankind turned their back on God to give their worship to that which is not God, which is idols, images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So now as we come to verse 24, we see that in our English Standard Version, it begins with the word, therefore. And the specific word Paul uses here, that's translated as therefore, uh, is telling us that what we read last week is the reason for what Paul says here in verse 24. And so let's, let's look at our text here. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. <clears throat> so again, verse 24 begins by saying, therefore. Or you could also translate it as saying, for this reason. And man rejected God, suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness, and suppressing in tru- the truth to embrace their sin. And since they rejected God, having rejected the knowledge that God has made plain to them through creation, and so not having not giving, sorry, not giving God the glory or thanking him as they should, as he alone deserves, not worshiping him as he deserves, but instead turning their worship, exchanging the glory of God for the immortal, the immortal God for what is infinitely less, what is unworthy of glory. 
So for this reason, for this idolatry, this rejection of God, for this reason, God gave them up. And this, this giving up of mankind, is the wrath of God revealed. And Paul refers to in verse 18. God gave up man, or he could say he turned them over, or he, he let them go, abandoning them to the outcome of their depravity. Now, there's some debate on, on how this actually looks, what, what Paul is really getting at here in, in the sense of how passive or how active is God in this? <clears throat> is God passively doing this in, in the fact that he's just removed his hands to allow man's depravity to run its course? And so would be as, as one described that God was holding the rope of the boat in the river and he just let the rope go to allow the current to sweep the boat downstream. Or is God more active in this? And that it, by removing his hand of grace that restrains sin, he actively consigned men over to their enslavement to sin, to the propensity of their depravity. You can go back and forth on this, and, and if you look at different commentaries, uh, seeing the, the different arguments they make uh, on either side of this. Um, in one commentary by Douglas Moo, uh, the New International Commentary series, um, when I was researching what commentaries to get for Romans to, to do this study, uh, I, I looked to try and find what is thought to be the best commentaries on each book of the Bible, and in every list I looked at, his commentary was listed as number one among what's considered the best all-around commentaries on Romans. And he takes that boat analogy and says God doesn't simply let the boat go, he gives it a push downstream. And as we consider how this word gets used by Paul, how this word for turned over or gave up to is used elsewhere as well, I personally lean towards a more active action of God's sovereignty in mankind and in the society. But in any case, we see here what God has done in his wrath against mankind in general, mankind in general, and against any society that rejects him. He gave them up, as it says here, in the lusts of their heart. And that should show us, then, that God did not give them up over to anything that wasn't already in them, that didn't already consume them, it wasn't something that wasn't already a part of them. Because as we think of man standing before God and their plight before God, as they are wicked and evil, and all of the wicked things that man does, where does that come out from? Where does that reside? In the heart. We stand before God, we stand with corrupt, wicked hearts. Right? And what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19? For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And so again, as we're going through this, uh, we need to remember the point of this section. 
the section that goes all the way into chapter 3, verse 20. We have to remember that Paul is showing that really there is no more wickedness out in the world, as we said last week, no more wickedness out in the world than there is right here in my own heart and in your own heart. That apart from the work of God in the gospel, the power of God for salvation to all who believe, there is no hope for anyone. And that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are all equal heirs of God's grace. For clearly, as wicked as we are, it can only be by grace that we are saved. And that's exactly what Scripture declares. And so this wickedness, uh, that's the very thing that God's grace had kept at bay within mankind. But in his judgment, he gave them up to the lusts of their heart. Again, as we said last week, we are totally depraved. There is no aspect of any one of us that sin does not touch in our natural selves. And so the only reason none of us, really, none of us are as bad as we could be, the only reason that is is because of God's grace restraining sin in us. It's God's grace that keeps your sin and my sin at bay and the sin of all mankind at bay. And it is grace that he does that. Because as we look to Scripture, and we, even we could look to our own experience and see how destructive sin is. I mean, just think of our sin. Think of your own sin and, and how you have been hurt by your own sin. Or how you have been hurt by someone else's sin. Or how your sin has hurt somebody else. Think of how sin can break relationships and cause someone to feel such anger and pain. Uh, think of what people do to deal with their guilt and the consequences of sin. How many have turned to alcohol and drugs? How not being able, being able to deal with life, they, they go on antidepressants because they, they just can't deal with their sin. And so often people get into these cycles of sin and get sucked down into more sin. Sin is destructive. And so if we understand what God is doing in here by removing his hand of grace that restrains sin, that he allows sin to run its course, this destructive thing, this wickedly destructive thing, then to understand that this is indeed judgment, that it is God's wrath, that he would remove his hand of restraint. But he takes the restraining bars of his grace away. And so handing mankind over in the lusts of their heart. And in doing so, it says here, he hands them over to impurity. Or you could say uncleanness or vileness or immorality. Uh, this word in the English Standard Version that is translated here as impurity is a, a word that Paul often uses for sexual immorality. And so many argue, and I think it's right, especially in this context, as we, we see one giving over and then a progression into another giving over, 
think that we see here in verse 24, Paul starts off by referring to man being handed over to sexual immorality in general. Just all kinds of sexual immorality. And it's true, as it says here, that all sexual immorality, all that is outside of God's design for sex, within the boundaries of marriage, as God defines marriage, all of that that is against God's design is something that is dishonoring. That when we practice sexual immorality, we practice the dishonoring of our bodies among ourselves. Sexual perversion in any form is degrading and so is dishonoring, or you could translate that as saying shameful. It is degrading to our own bodies and to those whom we use to fulfill our lusts. We make another person made in the image of God nothing more than the object of our pleasure. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is our character? Do we dishonor others? Dishonor them by objectifying them? Making them, in a sense, less than a person? Uh, Sexual perversion tramples on the dignity of human life. Again, that life made in the image of God. And yes, whenever we address this topic, there's a sense in which we specifically address the men because uh, it's often thought of as, as being specifically a, a man's struggle, but, but no, this would be a warning for everybody. If any woman is struggling with lust, or even in, in how you present yourself with modesty, uh, both bring up a question about, one, how you treat yourself. And also, too, how you care for a brother in Christ who may be tempted by you. And everyone must think about who they are in private. Who you are when no one else can see. Who you are when you're alone. Who you are in your private thoughts. This is who you really are. Your character does not rise above that. And so what lusts do you entertain? And what do you give yourself to? We can hide all kinds of things from other people, but we must remember nothing is hidden from God. So if you are trusting in Christ as your Savior, the one who died for your sins, the one who paid the price for your sins. Put away lust. If need be, run to another in Christ. If you're a woman, run to a, a sister in Christ, or a man, run to another brother in Christ. Run to someone who will pray for you and will ask you hard questions to hold you accountable. Don't keep your sin hidden where it will fester and grow, but expose it as you do everything you can to kill your sin. Doing everything you can 
to grow in Christ-likeness as you fall on your knees before your Lord and plead for mercy and strength to put your sin to death, to plead for mercy and strength to live for him who died for you. To honor him who is your Lord and Savior who saves you from your sin. Again, if you're trusting in Christ, you know Jesus is your Lord. If you're trusting in Christ, look what he has done for you. Live for him. And we must understand, because we can... There's been the tendency over the years to uh, want to protect against lust and, and sexual immorality, and so we, we end up going down a road where we, we present the wrong idea of sex. And we don't want to do that either. Uh, sex is a good gift that God has given within his design and purposes for it. It's a good gift from a good God within the boundaries that God has designed it in. Outside of those boundaries... So God ha how God has not intended it, it is a dishonoring and destructive thing. Let me read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the, sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Brother or sister, you are not your own. If you are trusting in Christ, you have been purchased with the infinite sacrifice, with the price of infinite worth, by the person of infinite worth. And him laying down his life for you. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Is that not your desire? To glorify him who died for you? As we come to verse 25 here, the English Standard version translates the relative pronoun as a conjunction here, the conjunction because. Uh, this is an interpretation choice to connect verse 25 to verse 24. Uh, but as I've studied this, I think, uh, as Douglas Moo points out as well, uh, to view verse 25 as connecting, connected to verse 24 in a causal way is, is a mistake. And I think we see this as verse 23 shows the reason for verse 24. And so it's more likely to see verse 25 as looking forward and showing the reason for verse 26. So we should read verse 25 as saying who, uh, and who referring to mankind and the dishonoring of their bodies. So it says, who exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator? who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, God has made the truth about himself known in creation. It's not that man did not know. It's that they suppressed what they knew. 
And so mankind is prone to idolatry. And that is the natural position of all of our hearts. We're all prone to idolatry. Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Having exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Mankind exchanged the truth about God for a lie. God has shown through all of his creation that he is he exists, and he is worthy of all honor and all glory. He is so worthy that it is literally a crime to not give him the honor and glory that's due him. It's wicked not to. Because he, because he is so worthy of it. But instead of giving him the glory he alone deserves, instead of holding to the truth, we bought the lie. Today, as in Paul's day, this can be seen in man's false religions. We see this in, the, in Paul's day in, in the worship of Roman and Greek gods and the temples and their idols. This can be seen today in, for example, the many gods of Hinduism or in the bowing down to statues and prayers to Mary and the saints in Catholicism. It's all paganism. It's all idolatry. It can be seen today in the atheist who denies God right out in order to place himself on the throne of his life to the worship of self. It can be seen in the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Pentecostals and all the rest of evangelicalism who are not committed to submitting to the scriptures as the authority for faith and practice, submitting to the scriptures to know and study them, to discover what God has revealed about himself so that we may know him. This false religion is found there because unless we we take what we believe about God from his revelation of himself, we will instead replace the truth with the lie of our own idolatry. Creating in our own minds a God who looks more like us. And so really to the worship of us. We create a God in our minds that we're more comfortable with rather than the God of the Bible. And so the truth is, we have all been guilty of idolatry. There are some who want to boast, no, I I loved God my whole life. I've always loved God. Well, the Bible says that by nature you're an enemy of God. So what God have you loved? The God of the Bible or the God that you fashioned in your own mind? Again, we've all been guilty. We've all exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. We've all exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We are all guilty and therefore we have all earned God's wrath. In what some call his magnum opus, his greatest work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And Tony Reinke, at least I think that's how you pronounce his last name, in an article he said this, 
Every believer had to resist the idol factory of their heart by filling their hearts with Christ and nourishing themselves with robust knowledge of who God has revealed himself to be in Scripture. The sad reality is that Scripture warns us over and over that we are all idol makers. Seven billion polytheists today cannot and will not stop worshiping because they cannot stop placing their hope and future security in things. Sovereign grace must break our idolatry, our idolatrous impulses. And he's right. The only way our hearts will turn from idols is by grace. The only way it can be said of us, what Paul said of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, that they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That will only be said of us by grace. Our creator alone is worthy of worship. And so even here, as Paul says this and references the creator who's worthy, he cannot help but worship him as he declares that the living God is blessed forever. And all of us whom he has saved, whom he has shown grace to, we all join Paul in saying amen. He is blessed forever. He is the worthy God. And so since all mankind has exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and so sinks deep into their idolatry in any and every way, we see then, verse 26 says, for this reason, for their idolatry, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And so as we've been working through this, we see uh, because of mankind's idolatry, God consigned them over in his wrath, to sexual immorality. And then furthermore, because of their idolatry, he consigned them over to what in context is clearly referring to homosexuality. Homosexual lusts. We see here both are dishonorable. We see he did this for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Such relationships are contrary to God's design and purpose. It's contrary to nature. And we see this clearly in Scripture. Go back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, we read in verses 27 to 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then when Moses is giving the details of the creation of the first man and first woman, and the woman is presented to the man, we read this in chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so then Moses writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And then the New Testament, when the Pharisees were trying to pervert marriage with divorce for every and any reason, Jesus refers back to this Genesis account. And we read this in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. It says, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then what does the Apostle Paul say? When we come to, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And so as we look at Scripture's teaching on these things, it is very clear what God's design and purpose is for marriage and for sex. And so homosexuality is clearly against God's design. There are those who want to make the scriptural doctrine of marriage and sex an an obscure teaching. You know, we really can't know what it's saying. We really can't know uh, what what God is getting across. Uh, There's different arguments. People don't agree on this. So we, we should just be able to agree to disagree. For instance, the self-proclaimed gay Christian, Matthew Vines, in an attempt to trip up those who hold to a biblical view of sexuality, compared the, the debate and disagreement of believers over what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 concerning head coverings and long hair. He compares that debate to what he thinks should be a debate here in Romans 1. 1 Corinthians 11, where we have that one passage, one concerning head coverings. And yes, there's some debate. How much does the culture play into this? And what does Paul say here? It's difficult to work through. But is is that what we have here in Romans? Not at all. Is this really obscure? No. Paul is here and elsewhere very clear on the matter. And when we take into consideration all of Scripture... The biblical doctrine of sex and marriage is undeniably clear. There's no question here. And so with God giving mankind up to shameful or dishonorable passions, describing what this means, Paul starts with women. Again, saying women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And it's clear from the context that Paul was referring to women having relationships with other women. This is what is unnatural. This is what is against God's design. And so is rebellion against the Creator. Now there is some question in asking, why did Paul start with women? It may be that Paul is showing that there is no distinction of culpability before God for women's indecent acts of shame as men in their shameful acts. Could be a reason why. 
Some argue that Paul refers to women first because it's more shocking as the depravity in women is usually usually under more constraints than it is for men. And so this would show them the extent of God giving up humanity to their sin. Charles Hodge, he said this on the matter. Paul first refers to the degradation of females among the heathen because they are always the last to be affected in the decay of morals, and their corruption is therefore proof that all virtue is lost. That could be the case. You know, as I was talking to Suzanne about this and saying, okay, help me work through uh, this argument here, she made the point that, yeah, it's it's a little more shocking when you hear of a, a woman axe murderer than you do of a man being a serial killer. Because that, that depravity is usually constrained more in women. And so, yeah, this, this could be the case. And if I understand what I've studied correctly, uh, this is why the NIV translates this verse saying, even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Even the women. Even. Yeah, that's, that's what they're getting across there. In any case, though, Just as women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, Paul says in verse 27, and the men likewise. Or you could say the men in the same way. So in other words, what the women did in exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, so did the men. And how did the men do this? The men did this by giving up natural relations with women, which is God's design, and were consumed with passion for one another. And as Paul says, men committing shameless acts with men. Again, people can make the argument all they want about how in the original text, the word homosexuality is not there. Now, again, that's a ridiculous argument. But let's just say it had some credence. Even still, you can't get around when Paul or Moses doesn't use a single word to refer to these things, but describes what's going on here. You can't get around it. It's clear what the Bible teaches on sexuality. And I think it's important to point out here that not only does Paul condemn the act of homosexuality in these verses and the act of sexual immorality earlier, but we also see him condemn the lust of homosexuality. I think it's important because, especially in recent times, there's been some discussion among professing believers that the act is certainly wrong, but the desire is not. So you may have the desire, but as long as you don't act on it, it's okay. But that's not what we see here. What Paul says condemns the fact that men are consumed with passion for one another. And let's just think about this too. If if there is nothing wrong with the desire itself, we have to be able to square that up with other teachings in Scripture. I mean, how do we square that up when it comes to the teaching of lust? With what Jesus says in Matthew 5, that if you even look with lust, you've committed adultery 
in your heart? Or how do we square that up with the Tenth Commandment, which condemns covetousness? No, in in all of these things, where do those desires come from? Are they holy and godly desires, or are they a result of the fall? No, the desire is evil and wicked. And then we combine, uh, add to our wickedness when we fulfill those desires in our actions. We have to understand, one stands before their creator in judgment if they are without Christ as their representative. And the Lord will not just judge them for their outward actions, but he will judge the condition of their hearts. And again, this is crucial. Even as we discuss these things, as we we see the point that Paul is driving at, that he's, he's building the case to say that all Gentiles, and then later he'll build the case that all Jews are under sin. We're all wicked. And so the understanding is, is all of us in our hearts are evil and are condemned before a holy God. No matter what our sin is, we all need a Savior. We all need forgiveness. We all need righteousness because not one of us has righteousness. We need that righteousness that is outside of us that's revealed in the gospel. That righteousness that is supplied to us by Jesus Christ and applied by faith. We need righteousness because we all have none. And without righteousness, none of us will enter the kingdom of heaven. We'll remain condemned in our sins. And so as men, like women, have committed shameless acts with other men, Paul says here, they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error or for their sin. This sin is self-destructive. And to go against nature brings its consequences. To go against God's design brings its consequences. And, And they have this consequence in themselves. The due penalty for their sin. If if God did not bring judgment against all that was rebellion against him, he would not be holy and just. And God could not let his design for human sexuality be so violated that it would not come with consequences for the sin, even consequences in their own body. And I think that can be seen in a few different ways. And I'm not going to take the time to talk about that now, but but we know that's true. But again, the driving point in all of this is the depravity of humanity. As God in judgment removes his restraining grace. Again, we see this in mankind in general but I think we can also see this progression in society as well. Just look at our society. Not that we were ever really a Christian society, but there was a time when the church was seen as valuable and the the moral teachings of the church were respected and, 
And I would argue that's as a result of the Reformation, really, and, and the influence that the Reformation had on the West. And we see that influence permeate even the founding of our nation. And, and though such things as sexual immorality and homosexuality and, and the things Ken will go over next week in, in the following passage, they were always there. But there was a time in our society when those things were done in secret. They were done in, in dark corners and alleys. They were not done in the public eye because there was public shame towards those things. A cultural shame. But as sexual immorality grew, and again, it was always there. Again, we can even go back to the founding of our nation. It was always there. Uh, but as it grew and grew into, for instance, what we see in the 60s of uh, the sexual revolution, and then over time, in increments, there was also a homosexual revolution as well, and, and that we got to where we are today. That again, where we're told that to not condone and to not approve is to hate. And we're, where we are today is that things that were once done in secret are now literally celebrated in the streets. And the rampant sexual immorality and rampant homosexuality that is in our society is really just evidence of God's judgment on our society. But these things have been in every age. We read this summer of Sodom and Gomorrah in Abraham's day. In Paul's day, there were plenty of Greeks who recognized homosexuality as unnatural, and yet it was accepted in Greek culture. Howard Reese wrote on how widespread homosexuality was in Athens. And William Barclay points out that 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. What we are reading about here is truly God's wrath revealed on mankind. Period. Mankind who, as sinners in their father Adam, are full of all the depths of depravity, rejecting God, though he has made himself known in creation. And so Paul is saying the evidence of sexual immorality in, in among mankind, the, the evidence uh, or, or seeing homosexuality as well in mankind is all evidence of God's wrath against mankind. And again, he's building his argument to show all of mankind, specifically in this case, all Gentiles are under sin and so have no righteousness. Because remember, the point is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it must be revealed because God's wrath is revealed from heaven. And this is how we see God's wrath, at least one example of it. And so the truth of the matter is, as mankind, we are all without excuse. We are all under judgment. Any of us. Again, we may say, well, this isn't my sin, or I haven't done this or that, but again, the only reason none of us are as bad as we could be is because of God's grace. 
Not because of any lack of depravity in us or any amount of goodness that we might think is in us. No, none of that is really there. None of us are righteous. We all need a Savior, for God's wrath is real. And apart from the grace of the Savior, we will stand in judgment to only know God's wrath. But Jesus is the Savior. Turn to Jesus and you will be saved. Right? That's, that's our message. That's what the Bible tells us. No matter who we are, no matter what our sin is, turn to Jesus and you will be saved. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He's talking to the church. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And for those of us who are trusting in Christ, isn't that our joy? Such were some of us. But we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified by faith. Justified by the righteousness that is from God, revealed in the gospel, the righteousness applied to us by Jesus. Jesus who lived the perfect life in place of our sinful lives. Christ who died to pay for our sin and rose again for our justification. So my friends, if you will trust in Christ, recognizing your utter sinfulness before him, that there is no hope in you, no goodness in you that you could stand before God outside of judgment. No, if you will trust alone in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, you will be saved. For all who trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. And you and I who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we can rejoice in the fact that we've been washed, we've been sanctified, and we've been justified. That because of Christ, we have a right standing with God, though in of ourselves we are totally depraved. Praise God for such grace and blessing. Praise God for such love. Let us then, in return, live for him. Put away every sin and doubt and, and everything that is of our old selves. Uh, seek to kill it in us for his glory. In response, let's live for him and let's go out and tell others about this great news of Jesus Christ. That whoever trusts in Christ, they can be washed, they can be sanctified, and they can be justified if they will turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. That is the hope that we have. The hope of the gospel, which is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.